Hi, Crime Junkies. Ashley Flowers here, and this week I am going to pick up where I left off in telling you Maura Murray's story. Just a reminder, this case is filled with rabbit holes, and I'm just giving you the high-level overview in the way that I learned about the case. There is a ton of additional information online and even in other podcasts and documentaries that you can lose yourself in if you really want to. But if you're wanting to know why I'm obsessed with this case and why it stayed with me for so many years, I think this episode will explain it all. So where we left off last week is the weekend before Maura disappeared, her dad was in town to help her shop for a new car. Hers was in really bad shape, and she shouldn't have been driving it. They pick out a car, but the plan was for him to come back the next weekend and actually buy it with her. While he's in town, Maura borrows his new car and ends up crashing it and doing about $10,000 in damage. After her dad leaves Amherst, Massachusetts, she abruptly tells her professors that there's been a death in the family and she needs to take a week off. But we all know now that there was no death in her family. She had some driving directions printed out to the New Hampshire area, and we know she had been calling around to rental places in that area, although from everything we can tell, she didn't actually book anything. We think she left her dorm around 3.30 in the afternoon of February 9th and headed north. Mind you, she's driving the car that was in bad shape and shouldn't have been driven at all. She makes a stop at an ATM and withdrew almost all of her money, which is about $280. Then she stops at a liquor store where she buys boxed wine, some Kahlua, and vodka. The next thing we know for sure is around 7.25, Maura crashes her car into something on Wild Amanusik Road, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere. I think the consensus from everyone is she either knew exactly where she was going that night or she was super lost, which I get is like every option across the spectrum. But shortly after she crashes, a man named Butch Atwood comes upon Maura and he asks her if she needs help or if she would like him to call the police. And Maura says, no, I've already called AAA. Now, Butch knows this is a lie because there's no cell reception, but he doesn't press her. He just goes home and calls 911 anyways. This is the second call made because we find out later that another neighbor had already called a couple of minutes before about the crash. In a seven-minute window from the time Mora is last seen to when a first responder gets on site, Mora vanishes. There are no tracks in the snow. She isn't seen back in town, which was the direction she came from, and the officer who drove up upon the scene didn't see her walking in the original direction she was heading. Her car was locked, the airbags were deployed, and there was a crack in the windshield over the driver's side. Also, there was some red splashes on the ceiling and in the driver's side door, and some pink stuff in the snow. Later, police say they found a Coke bottle in the car that smelled like alcohol, and this began to lead to a theory that maybe Maura was drinking and driving and had just walked away. Now, Maura's dad said something very interesting to the media in the first days after Maura went missing. He said that she didn't have to be afraid to come home, and whatever happened, they could fix anything together. 
Now, later he regretted saying this, telling the police and the public that she had everything going for her. And if a little car accident with his new car was the worst trouble she got in, that she was a pretty good kid. But that wasn't the worst trouble she got in. There was a lot about Maura's life that wasn't known to the public for some time. And a lot of choices that led her to that spot on Wild Amanusik Road that night. So many people who have looked at this case eventually give up on trying to figure out what Maura was doing in New Hampshire that night. But I think the entire case hinges on where she was going and who she was going to meet. So to figure that out, I want to start all the way back with Maura's time at West Point. Originally, we're told she left the college to study nursing, and she did go on to study nursing, but the truth is a little more sordid than that. It turns out that while at West Point, Maura and a friend were shopping at Fort Knox, literally the place people use when they want to reference like the most secure place ever, Fort Knox. And she tries to steal a couple of little items. A friend remembers it being something small like lipstick or nail polish. But whatever it was, Mora got busted. And instead of getting expelled from West Point, which looks freaking awful, she decided just to transfer. Now, I have no idea why Mora did this, why she stole these items. And she told her friend at the time she didn't really know either. She said she had the money to pay for these things. So while it doesn't make total sense, I will say... This doesn't seem insane to me. I've known girls about her age that went through this phase where they would swipe small items from stores for literally no reason. And it might sound crazy, but it happens. Now, granted, it's super dumb, and no one is saying that these girls I know or Mora were making smart decisions. Again, especially when you're testing your luck against one of the most secure facilities in the nation, that's pretty ballsy. But this wasn't the thing that made me question everything I knew about Mora and her story. What makes me question everything is the fact that this didn't scare her off. After Mora got to UMass, she had another instance of stealing. And this one was even a little more extreme. The Amherst police got a report of someone using a stolen credit card to order pizza. They conducted a little sting operation and had an officer deliver the pizza, and it was delivered to Mora's dorm room, and when she signed for it, it was all over. They cited her, and basically, she got off kind of easy and was just given probation for a few months as long as she didn't have any other infractions this thing would fall off her record. Now, when they cited her, they took her picture, and you guys, it's super eerie. It's not like all of the other pictures we see of Mora, the smiling all-American track star. This one is a glimpse, I think, into a totally different side of her. And you can see this picture on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com, or on Instagram, at crimejunkiepodcast. And something I want to throw in here, because I'm not really sure where it fits, but it's worth mentioning, Mora called Domino's, where she ordered the pizza, like a lot. Now, I get it, it's college and pizza is life. But when you look at her phone records, which I'll also link to on the website, it seems unusually often. And more so when you know that Mora suffered from an eating disorder. She was actually bulimic for many years. And I'll be totally transparent. I don't have a ton of knowledge on this type of eating disorder. So I don't know if her eating habits were normal given somebody with this disorder or if her many calls to Domino's before her disappearance indicates a possible stress in her life. But this is something to note because it's just another example of how imperfect Moro's perfect life actually was. She was human and she was struggling with something very real. So she has this charge of fraud looming over her and she needed to keep her nose clean until it dropped off. 
This brings us to the night that Mora got escorted home from work by her boss because she was so upset. All she could tell her boss was that it's my sister, something something with her sister. But her sister Kathleen swears their conversation was very normal, and at the time, she couldn't think of any reason it would upset Mora so profoundly. For a long, long time, people theorized about this phone call. People's theories could usually be placed into one of four categories. The first, that Kathleen was lying and covering up for whatever they really talked about. The second was that the call to Kathleen was really benign and insignificant, and really, it was a conversation Maura had with her boyfriend Billy later that same evening that really upset her. After all, Billy's call was much closer to the time that Maura was discovered in this catatonic-like state by her boss. The third theory about this call is that neither call upset Maura, and she was just making up an excuse to get out of work. And the final theory... A theory that I couldn't let go for a long, long time was that Mora had been involved in a hit and run that night. On that same night at the campus of UMass, a young man named Patrit Bassey was struck and severely injured, like in a coma for months kind of injured. And to this day, the person who struck him has never been caught. The theory at the time was that maybe Mora had left her post at work for a bit just to run out to get something, and she struck Patrit Vassy. And if this happened, then the theory goes on to say that she panicked and drove off because she knew she was already on probation, and not only would this solidify her fraud charges on her record, but she would also be facing much worse charges and possibly prison time for something this serious. People said that this could have been why she was really upset and catatonic, but she made up a lie about her sister to cover her tracks. Now, the reason I couldn't let go of this for a long time was that it kind of made sense to me. No one else was saying that they had a bad conversation with her. Something had to have had upset her this much. Like, she might steal, she might lie, but she is not an Oscar-winning actress. I found it really hard to believe that she could fake something like that for her boss just to get out of, like, one more hour of work. I also wondered if the damage on her car was caused by hitting Patrie instead of crashing into something that night like a snowbank. There's been a lot of talk around the damage on her car and how it doesn't quite fit with hitting a snowbank or a tree, and no one can quite tell how she got into the position she was in on that road. So I kept thinking, maybe this is how. But I will tell you, it's 2018, I don't think she hit Patrie Vassy. Even Patrit has been interviewed and thinks it's a far-fetched theory. While the damage on Moore's car might not fit with a snowbank, from everything I've read, it also doesn't fit with hitting a person. And there's been no report of Moore's car being damaged before she left Amherst that day. But if you crime junkies are like me, there's still something in your head saying, but what if? And that doesn't explain her being so upset. And all my questions got put to rest when I watched the Oxygen special on Mora's disappearance in 2017. For the first time ever, Kathleen was interviewed in depth about that phone call she had with Mora. And what we learn is at the time of the phone call, Kathleen had just gotten released from rehab and her fiance had picked her up and taken her straight to a liquor store. So Kathleen, while not wasted, said she was back to drinking. And to me, this is a very plausible reason for Moore's reaction. Her sister, who she loved, was struggling and hurting and there was nothing Moore could do to help her. 
I'm sure some people will continue to talk about Patrit Vassi. I've pretty much made up my mind. That's one of those red herrings that will take you far down a rabbit hole and distract you from what really matters in this case. And what really matters are the other things going on in Mora's life at this time. So she's basically been forced to leave one school for stealing. She's on probation for fraud. Her sister has fallen off the wagon after rehab. She's gotten into an accident with her dad's new car that may or may not have made her think that maybe it could affect her parole. Now, both the night of Kathleen's call and the night of the accident with her dad's car, Maura turned to her boyfriend, Billy, for comfort or stability. With everything going on, you would hope that she would have someone she could lean on. But what we learn is that their relationship wasn't perfect either. In the first documentary I ever watched about this case, their relationship was all roses. Fred said they were engaged to be engaged. Billy's mom said that they adored each other. And maybe both things are true, But it's not the whole truth, because the whole truth is that their relationship was riddled with infidelity. First, we learn that Billy had been cheating on Mora. In fact, he cheated on Mora with someone at West Point who told Mora's sister, who then obviously told Mora. So I don't really know where their relationship stood on the 9th when Mora left her dorm room. In one place early on, before I knew about the cheating, Billy's mom said that they were kind of playing phone tag that day, and Mora had sent him an email that said she loved him, but she just didn't feel like talking. So I don't think they were necessarily breaking up, but when she left her dorm room that day, she did something strange that to this day, no one can explain. When she left her dorm room, almost her entire room was packed into boxes. There was another email that she had printed either to or from Billy and not the one saying that she loved him and would call him later. She printed an email that alluded to the troubles that they were having in their relationship and she placed it on the top of the boxes in her room. Some people think that this could just be a weird coincidence. Some people think it was a message, Mora telling anyone who found her room that she was leaving. Everything was packed up And then this email about her relationship telling everyone, this is everything you need to know about why I left. But maybe it's not all what it seems. February 9th was just after the start of the semester. Maybe Mora hadn't packed up her room. Maybe she just hadn't unpacked it yet. And I can't explain the email. I don't think anyone but Mora can. But she lived in a dorm room alone. So who would she have even expected to find that? And if they did, was it really a message that she was leaving for good? Just the night before, Mora had turned in some homework via email, and she took her school books with her on the trip. Although she lied to her professors, everything she did makes it look like she had every intention of coming back eventually. Another thing I should mention, another reason I don't think Mora was running away because Billy was cheating on her, she was cheating on Billy. Mora had had a relationship with her track coach, Hussein Baghdadi. From what I can gather, their affair wasn't going on at the time of her disappearance, but this introduces a lot of new elements to Mora's case. So this is everything that led up to Mora and her decision to leave on February 9th. I don't think we can point to any one thing in particular, but maybe it was just a collection of life pressures that caused her to start looking up rental properties in the White Mountains. Or maybe there was something we're still missing some piece of the puzzle that would make it all fit together and show us a bigger picture because I can't help feeling that I'm missing something. Or maybe the piece that's missing isn't something, but someone. When Mora left UMass that day, her first stop was to that ATM. And from the footage that was released in 2017, she appears to be totally alone. 
at least in the ATM. From the footage they released, we cannot see her car. So if someone was in the car with her, we can't know for sure. But there are a few things worth pointing out that make many people wonder if maybe she wasn't alone on this journey. The first that I want to point out it's actually new because it comes from this ATM footage that just got released. Mora is wearing a light-colored jacket in the video. On all of her missing person flyers, it says she would likely have a dark coat. Now, this jacket she's wearing is also really big, so it's possible that it could have been someone else's. It's also important to note that Mora had her hair in a bun on the ATM video, like she has her hair in most of the pictures we see of her. When she crashes, just a few hours later, her hair is down, according to Bush Atwood, and he even describes it as black, which she has light brown hair. Is it possible that that night he didn't talk to Mora at all, but rather someone else who was traveling with her? And this kind of brings me to a second point. In the first 911 call from Faith Westman, who lived just across from the accident site, the transcription that was released is redacted. But we know through years and years of people digging and interviewing that at some point, she said there was a man smoking a cigarette in the car. She would later say, no, maybe she was wrong. She just saw a red light. But it seems a very specific thing to say and something that a lot of people cannot let go of. The third thing to discuss that maybe lends credence to Mora not being alone is how much alcohol Mora had purchased. There are actually three different accounts for what alcohol she had from three different places, her family, the Haverhill police, and the state police. And I don't think all of them are misinformed or just don't know what they're talking about. The best theory I have heard put forward on this is from a podcast called 107 Degrees. They posed that maybe we're all asking three different questions. Maybe we're asking, what was it that she bought? What was it that was found at the site? And what's been accounted for? Because there was more than just that Kahlua vodka and boxed wine. There were also some wine coolers found, which we know for sure she didn't buy at that liquor store. So someone else either brought them or Mora made another stop at another liquor store. And all of this seems like a lot of alcohol for one person, even if it was for a full week. So did Mora have someone with her or was she going to meet somebody? There is one sighting from a woman who works at a grocery store in Haverhill near the crash site who says that Mora came in and bought some blue wine coolers. But this lady says Mora wasn't alone. She was with two girls who also had out-of-state IDs. This sighting has never been confirmed, but many people believe that the two girls were Sarah and Kate, Mora's two friends that she was partying with the night that she wrecked her dad's car. This possible stop at the liquor store and knowing maybe Mora was with or met up with somebody or someones also explains the gap in time. There's about an hour missing from the time she left UMass to the time she crashed on Wild Amanusik Road in Haverhill. And we're already accounting for her stops at the ATM and the liquor store. So did Mora stop to pick somebody up? Did she stop to eat? Did she go meet somebody? What Mora did in this hour is a huge unknown. And I think so many of the answers to this case lie within that hour. Because not a single bone in my body believes that she went up there with the intention of being all alone. The final point I need to bring up that maybe points to her meeting somebody is a number that called her phone. There was a number from Londonderry, New Hampshire that called Mora's phone the afternoon or early evening of her accident. But this wasn't on Mora's cell records because it wasn't actually picked up and it didn't even make it to her phone to ring. 
Therefore, we don't have any information on who that number belonged to. Londonderry is also like two hours away from Haverhill heading south. So was somebody going to meet her? Were they meeting at this third location? Or did Mora go out of her way to meet this person? Could this explain for the missing hour? Because if she went to Londonderry before Haverhill, it is way out of the way. It actually adds about an hour and a half. So I don't think she went all the way there, but it's possible she could have swung by, picked somebody up, or again, these two people are meeting at a third location. And maybe they were planning on meeting and this person tried to call her while she was on the road. And when that person called, she had no service. Now, this whole idea of her driving with somebody or meeting somebody kind of feeds into a pretty prevalent theory called the tandem driver theory, which says basically someone was likely driving there with Mora, likely in front of her, and at some point, Mora gets in her accident, and this person either sees that she gets in an accident and goes and turns around, or even more likely, at some point, they look up and they realize that she's no longer in their rearview mirror, and so then they turn around and pick her up, and they happen to get there in that seven-minute window when no one was looking. This would explain why Morris scent was tracked about 100 feet up the road and then just disappeared. Now, for people who believe the tandem driver theory, there are really two possibilities. Either Mora was running away and this person helped her do it, or whoever Mora was with meant her harm. And both are possible, but those are not the only possibilities. It could be very likely that Mora met with foul play. Even if she was going to meet someone, maybe that person wasn't traveling in tandem with her. Maybe they were meeting at this third location in Haverhill or past Haverhill. The theory that she met with foul play is what Mora's father believes, and this is what many of the locals talk about. And I think there should be some weight given to what the people of the area think. They know their neighbors, and they know what they're capable of. A lot of people, though, say, my God, what are the odds that Mora, in seven minutes, would get spotted by some kind of monster who just happened to be driving down the same road? And I know this seems unlikely, but it does happen. There is a specific rumor, in fact, about three young men who worked in Loon, which is a ski area. Supposedly, in this theory, they would have driven by Mora's accident site that same day that she crashed. And supposedly, they didn't show up for work the next day. But as far as I know, there hasn't been a ton of investigative efforts put into looking at these three men. When people look at this theory, a lot of them respond to this and say, well, Mora would have had to have been forced into a car, right? Because Butch came by and he offered to help and she didn't take it. And if she was forced, you know, everyone thinks that she would have made a big scene. Well, first of all, I think you should look up a picture of Butch Atwood. If he rolled up in a bus on a dark road at night, I'd be like, I'm good, man, thanks. But maybe Mora felt more comfortable with younger guys who might have been closer to her own age approaching her. Or maybe someone did, in fact, force her into a vehicle and just nobody saw. No one was looking, and so now we will never know. There's something else we should talk about. That rag in her tailpipe. For a long time, people pointed to this as a sign of foul play, saying maybe Mora stopped for gas and somebody put that in there so she would break down. But I think we can be almost certain that that's not what happened for two reasons. One, we have now come to learn that her dad actually told her to do this. Remember, her car was in horrible shape and apparently it would smoke really bad. So Mora's dad told her, if you're in a real bind and you need to drive, just a little ways and you don't want to get pulled over, stick this in there so that it doesn't produce as much smoke and it won't draw attention from police. 
Now, I'm no mechanic, but this seems like awful advice. But I think this rag is kind of a red herring as well, because the second point I want to make is that it likely wouldn't have stalled her car out. In that same oxygen special I watched last year on the case, they actually had a mechanic recreate Mora's car in the same condition it was in, and the car going any normal speed would have spit out the rag out of the tailpipe. So I have to wonder if maybe Mora didn't put the rag in the tailpipe after the crash, because if it would have been in before, from all the tests that they run, it should have popped out. Now, why would she have put it in her tailpipe? Maybe her car was in worse condition and she thought about driving it again. I don't know. You just got to add this to the list of questions we already have. Now, along with the Loon Mountain 3 theory, there is one more theory about someone maybe harming Mora that has been prevalent for years. And you'll see it referred to online as the A-frame theory. About a mile from Mora's crash site was an A-frame house. A few years after Mora's disappearance, a man claiming to be the brother of the guy who lived in the A-frame house brought a knife to Fred Murray. He said he found it in his brother's glove compartment and there was blood on it. According to a PI working the case at the time, he and Fred sent it to the police. And at first, the police sent it back. They didn't want to take it. They rejected it. So they tried a second time, and finally the police agreed to take in this evidence. But after they turned it in, they just never heard another word about it. So fast forward to 2006, the same private investigator contacted the new residents of the A-frame house, and they let him come in and take cadaver dogs into the house. Now they bring these dogs in, and upstairs, in a bedroom closet, the dogs go absolutely berserk. There was no doubt they were detecting on some kind of remains. So they take a sample of the carpet in this closet and turn it over to police again. But again, if it was actually tested at all, they heard nothing of the results. And as far as we know, the police didn't go there to collect their own samples. And now there's nothing left to collect. The new owners took out the carpet and have replaced the flooring completely. Now, 10 years after that, in 2016, that same PI returned to the house and collected some wood chips from the closet that looked to be bloodstained. When they got it tested, it did show that there was human blood on it, and there were two samples. One was definitely male, and the other was unidentified. They again turned this over to police, but police say the wood is too degraded to test. And even more than that, though, there's a bigger problem with all of this evidence turned in. Chain of custody. If law enforcement aren't the ones to collect the evidence, there is a very good chance that it will all be thrown out in court. So they will never use anything like this. And it's not just the Haverhill Police. It's not just the New Hampshire State Police. All law enforcement works like this. You have one chance to try someone, so they're not going to use evidence that they got from someone else and that they didn't handle directly. So even if it is Moore's blood on that knife, even if it is her blood on the carpet, even if it's her blood on that wood chip, None of it will be enough to get a conviction because of who found it. And you would think that if it was hers, they would at least have had enough to get a warrant and go back and test themselves. But warrants can be thrown out as well. And I listen, I'm not in love with the legal system. And a lot of the rules that we have in place to protect the innocent often end up protecting the guilty too. What I think is kind of inexcusable is if we find out something did happen to Mora in that house, why did it take a PI to find all of this stuff? Why weren't police asking the right questions and getting to that A-frame house first? 
After the oxygen special was released in 2017, it's said that Mora's case has been reopened and actively being reinvestigated. So now we wait. Some of the players, like Butch Atwood, are now dead. The case is colder than ever, and the theories won't stop until Mora is found dead or alive. Some people firmly believe that she ran away and is living a new life. Some, like me, think something horrible happened to her that night, either at the hands of someone Mora trusted or a stranger. I know the evidence in this A-frame seems pretty damning, but there's just something I can't shake. I think Mora was for sure planning on coming back. She was doing her homework. She was taking her schoolbooks with her. You don't do that if you're running away. Something had to have happened to her. And everything I see says that she was with someone else, or at least going to meet someone else. So if she ran into a serial killer, the Loon Mountain 3, or this man who lived in an A-frame house, why hasn't the person who she was going to meet, the person who maybe tried calling her from Londonbury, New Hampshire, why hasn't that person come forward to say that they were with her that night or were planning to be with her that night? Like I said at the beginning, there's a big piece of this puzzle to Maura's story that's missing, and nothing will make sense until we find that. You guys, the internet is filled with this case. There are blogs, there are podcasts, there are documentaries. Again, I just scraped the surface, so feel free to go and take a deep dive. You guys will get lost in this. And if you want to see some of the stuff I talked about, you can go to our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Crime Junkie Podcast, and on Twitter, at Crime Junkie Pod. And if you want extra episodes, don't forget you can always go to Patreon, where we have episodes at the $5, $10, and $20 level. If you totally want to go through another binge, patreon.com slash crime junkie. And I will see you guys back again next week for a brand new episode. This week's episode of Crime Junkie was written and hosted by me. All of our editing and sound production was done by David Flowers, and all of our music, including our theme, comes from Justin Daniel. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Uh